0: Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments for us, you can always reach us on uh, Podbean, which is our carrier. Leave them in the uh, comments section. Or you can email them to me directly at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. And of course... uh, you know, some big stuff has happened uh, since the lad's last podcast. This is number 112, one of my favorite numbers, by the way. I served in the 1st of the 12th Infantry many years ago, and that was always known as 112. So this is episode 112, so it's it's a big one for me. Uh, you know, the Deep State just, just took it on the chin. Um, this lunatic... Chipman, David Chipman, is that his name? Yeah, David Chipman. that they were going to have in charge of the ATF and and face it with his record he would have effectively uh, attempted to end gun ownership in the United States. He's a gun control advocate. He's anti-gun rights, anti-second amendment, anti-constitution of the United States. Um, And among other things, he's a racist and and, uh, probably has a lot of other things wrong with him, too. If you ever looked at the guy, he just—he looks pretty weird. He looks pretty out there. So there's a lot wrong with him, and even the Democrats couldn't stomach a communist apparatchik like this who's out there to disarm you so that, you know, you will be living... In Stalin's Russia, or you will be living in Nazi Germany. That's where you're going to wind up if a guy like Chipman is in charge of your gun rights. You won't have any; they'll be gone faster than you know. But the deep state is out there. Um, it's very disturbing to see how deeply involved the military leadership is in the deep state. I mean, you know, we have a, as Americans we have a contract with our military and since I've been in the military and out of the military um, I'm on both sides of the contract but here's the contract as I understand it that the people of the United States will give you the best weapons and training possible and will elect leaders that will use military force in the most judicious manner okay so it's not going to be just, it's not like the French Foreign Legion where they can just slap it anywhere and if it gets wiped out, who cares? It's its we take care of our people as very best we can. Now the other side of that contract is we expect them to win. We expect generals to be generals. We expect generals to be like General Patton, General Eisenhower, General MacArthur. Oh God, the list just goes on and on of great generals we've had. You know, when you talk about, you know, the 82nd Airborne and, and, uh, you know, Maxwell Taylor, these guys. I mean, those were really tough guys, and they were generals. They were out to win. They lived for the day when they could vanquish the country's enemies on the battlefield. Uh, Think about, you know, if you ever get a chance um, and, and visit the Pershing birthplace, the John Pershing birthplace, one of the things they show you is there was a, used to be a series on A&E called Biography. Maybe you can find it on YouTube or someplace. But General Pershing's biography, and it runs the thing runs about 40 minutes, goes from his boyhood to basically, uh, it, it spans his entire life. But during World War I, he, he basically, because of the communications and other things, he was, he was autonomous. And foreign governments had to deal with him, and he was a take-no-prisoners, let's-win kind of guy. He was not, you know, a like so much of what we see now. The, you know, he, he really makes the old plow horse, silly Millie, you know, silly Mark Millie, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who looks like an old Eeyore the Plow Horse. Up there, you know, his, his saggy old eyes and his grizzly white hair. And, you know, it looks like he's 90 years old. And and basically a guy who was in charge of the most advanced military on the planet that couldn't beat 12th century bandits with cast off weapons. That's who Millie is. That was not Pershing. Pershing would have beaten the Taliban in because he actually fought. Guys who were tougher than the Taliban. He fought and conquered the Moro Indians in the Philippines. And they were super tough dudes. Um, They were super tough. A lot tougher than the Taliban. And, uh, you know, Pershing beat them. Pershing beat them. He was relentless. He was hardcore. He was ruthless when he had to be. He was a guy who won. And that was the contract we had. Um, Even in World War II, you know um we did our best as a country to give people good rifles good equipment good airplanes good tanks and and all of this stuff and after the war you know there were a few weapons that came up short most notably the sherman tank and a few other things uh we decided we would never be militarily unprepared again and we would always have the best equipment anywhere and we the u.s taxpayer has kept that promise we have kept that promise. And the, the promise that hasn't been kept is our politicians screwed up the Vietnam War. They screwed that all up. And now they've screwed up Afghanistan. So that at the 20-year anniversary of the worst terrorist attack in the country, uh, punks like that guy Abu Nassan who murdered 13 people, 13 or 14 people at Fort Hood, uh, all these people are sending congratulations to the Taliban. Twenty years after 9/11, the Taliban is celebrating, and basically we are not, and that's because the silly Mark Millies of the world, and there's a whole there's a whole line of them. The problem is, even if you fire Millie and Austin, which should be done, which should be done, there's 50 or 60 guys behind them who've been promoted in the same system who are just like them so uh we we have a crisis of leadership the deep state will do any i mean look how they've embraced wokeism to the to the ridiculous extent they have they're they're talking they're tweeting about you know lgbt rights when the taliban is taking over bagram airbase this is this is amazing The United States has just, and I said this in the last podcast, unilaterally and unconditionally surrendered an ally in the field and unilaterally and unconditionally surrendered the battlefield to the enemy. The only time this has ever happened, and it's actually only the second part, we've never unilaterally surrendered an ally. Uh, We didn't surrender Britain. We We didn't go to the Nazis and say, hey, you know, Okay, it's 1942. Britain isn't going to last that much longer. We we're we're leaving, and you can you can have them. No, we didn't we didn't do that. Um, the only time this ever happened was in the War of 1812, and there was you know all these goofy military operations up around the Great Lakes and Upper New York and places like that. And uh, there was a general, Brigadier General Hull who surrendered a large force unconditionally and unilaterally in the field. And he was tried for treason. He was actually tried and convicted and sentenced to death. And um, I forget who the president was. I guess it was Madison. Basically spared him and said, no, we're not going to execute him, but you know, his name is forever a stain on the national honor and all that. But now we we just sit there and, and you know what people are like yeah Afghanistan felt big big deal you know they're worried about who's going to be in the, the playoff games for the stupid NFL or, or some other idiotic nonsense. Um, you look at the you look at the news pages and it's like, you know the, the, the pathetic part is they get these older, ladies who used to be actresses or models and it's like yeah she's 59 and she's rocking a bikini in Antigua. You know, I mean, ridiculous, how that is the very definition of ridiculous. And yet that's what people see as news because there's so much of that out there. There's just one ridiculous story after another. And things that matter, things that actually matter, uh, go underreported or misreported. So the deep state is out there and it's you, you see it, you know, Any anybody who would seriously back this Chipman guy, Uh, was a fool, a complete, utter fool. And, you know, even. thank God that even the Democrats weren't stupid enough to go to the wall for this guy. They're pretty stupid, but they weren't that stupid. But they are stupid enough to be the biggest group of mask tards on the planet. I don't know about you, but I don't believe any of these goddamn people You know i mean people are telling you well the vaccine works get get vaccinated okay fine well everybody needs to put on a mask to protect you from unvaccinated people that may have the delta variant well if that's true why are people being encouraged to get vaccinations if the vaccination doesn't work against the delta variant which is the one we have to worry about now and and the answer is they love the mask They love the control, and the mask has become their symbol of how they're going to control you. And it's up to you whether you put up with this or not. I would say fight mask mandates at every level, at every level. Uh, You cannot, you absolutely cannot let them get away with this. Now, I'm not saying get in trouble or don't don't punch out airline attendants or anything like that. But you can definitely push back whenever your voice can be heard. Push back. And I only hope that this latest thing Biden's trying will go to court, be found unconstitutional, and flop. Um, you know, he is the most pathetic human being who's ever been president. The disrespect he showed for those 13 guys and gals who were just spent and wasted for nothing. Um you know, checking his watch, talking about his own son who never died in combat, who died of cancer, but not in combat. Uh, and and, and Bo Biden, with all respect, was not a frontline foot soldier anyway. He was a military lawyer. He, he was not putting on body armor, picking up a weapon and taking the fight to the bad guys. He was doing something else. And I'll leave it to you how important that is or, or how how good that is. Um, because it's important work but it's not carrying the battle to the bad guys and he came back and years later died of cancer and then somehow old slow joe is trying to conflate that with these people who've just lost you know all these people were were in their early 20s and it was a bad mission a bad all the bad decisions that could have been made were made you couldn't set out to put them in a worse situation than what they were put into and disaster struck so there you go and these are the same people telling you "Oh, you need to wear a mask because there are people out there unvaccinated well if I'm vaccinated I don't have to worry about it because I'm vaccinated well no you need to put it on because they're you know the vaccine might not work okay if the vaccine doesn't work why are we telling other people to get vaccinated I mean it's it's this circle talk that that keeps happening and, it, and it's illogical and it doesn't make any sense and that's why people don't want to follow it hey if if the only way not to get this thing and die is to get vaccinated that should be the message and you don't you don't reinforce that message by telling everyone to put on a mask every day in everywhere you know and they're trying to do that but a lot of places are pushing back go to the places where you don't have to wear a mask you know I I don't I don't really go to stores where I have to wear a mask, you know. If if they require a mask, I don't go in. I walked out of a place just the other day. I said, nope, not going in. Sorry, you know. Take your mask and and uh, put it over your own uh, orifice. You know, it's it's just not worth it. Oh well, that's enough for politics. Fifteen minutes worth of of trying to. You could do. A 10-hour podcast a day for <laughs> every every single day and not cover all the nonsense political garbage we're being fed um, it's absolutely it's absolutely outrageous so we will go on to some gun things and as most of you know this is kind of a three-part podcast we talk about politics then we talk about things in the gun culture, if there's anything, and it's actually been kind of quiet. There isn't too much, and then we talk about, um, you know, gun stuff. So, and part of that is the Q and A, which is my favorite part. But we're kind of into the into the gun stuff right now, and so I'm going to update on a couple of projects that I've been talking about. Uh, the first is uh, the 44 wad cutters. I was all set last weekend to cast up a bunch of 44 caliber wad cutters and get that underway. <laughs> However, fate struck. Uh, what happened was I got my mold out, everything was good to go, and I opened it and I noticed that it was not operating correctly. And I bought this mold years ago. This is a Lee 208 grain 44 Magnum mold, and I detected that. And I've never used the mold. As a matter of fact. I've taken it out of the box, put it back in the box, and, and it sat for a long, long time, years. So what I did was I, I looked, and they actually had forgotten to put the pins that hold the mold blocks onto the handle. They didn't have those in there, and they're just little tiny pins that are pointy on one end, and you can just drive them in with a punch. But lo and behold, I had to order the the replacement pins, which were like they were like a buck a piece. And um, I ordered a few other things, too. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to take... Because they say, give us 14 days to process your order and ship it. And I said, well, I'll see this next month. And actually, I got it uh, in less than a week. I got it like six days. So I'm really happy with Lee. You know, when they can... A lot of firearms, the old, especially the old guard, of firearms related companies, really do a fantastic job, a fantastic job. And Lee is one of them. So, and I've had great luck with our CBS, Dylan, a lot of those. I think the only people who got us have a spotty reputation in um, the gun culture are when these companies emerge to and they want a big deposit because they're gonna turn out some high speed gun i think the latest one was the what is it hill and mac with their stg 44 which has never seen the light of day in spite of all the hype they got from in range tv and everything else um you know just never happened yet there are people who have paid the money and are dutifully waiting for their guns i suppose so the wad cutters, uh, the 44 caliber wad cutters never happened. Um, I switched to my 38 caliber wad cutter mold and, and I cast up a bunch of those because uh, I always have a need for those. So um, anyway, that was the that was the update on the 44 wad cutter. I'm still looking forward to it. Um, I'm actually really excited about it. I want to load some in some special cases and have some really nice 44 special target loads, and that ought, that ought to be fun. Uh, I love wad cutters anyway. Semi wad cutters and wad cutters, I really like. They're just good bullets. They're good. They're actually good performers on small game with you know within their range. They're accurate. They're easy to shoot. Um, yeah, they're, they're wad cutters are good. It used to be you could any any place that sold ammunition sold thirty eight wad cutters. Not not so much anymore if any company actually even loads any which which is doubtful um, but it's mostly a hand loading proposition now it just shows you how much things have changed in hand loading and and uh, shooting in 60 years you know the ammunition we could get 60 years ago a lot of it you can't get now so uh, that's and we're gonna talk about hand loading up here pretty pretty soon uh, one of the other things I tried and another epic fail um, I've been fascinated by powder coating bullets, lead bullets, and there's a reason for that. Um, I well, I lived through the moly coating thing where everybody was molly coating their high power rifle bullets, and and some guys swore by it, but I think the after a few years, the consensus was that this was a colossal waste of time and money. That there's no real proof that molly coated bullets shoot better than other bullets. It's kind of that you know that tradition that voodoo that people put into certain practices that that you know this is the way it has to be because this is the way you know it was always thought to be and so this is must be the way it is and molly coding started to fall into that it came became this kind of mythical thing that you know if you didn't do it somehow you were behind everybody else and they found out that basically none of that really works it doesn't do anything so I lived through the molly coating thing. Powder coating I wasn't too impressed with. I kind of looked and first of all the colors were turning me off. Guys turn out bright blue bullets or red bullets or something. I didn't really see. I thought they were just doing it for appearance. Then I actually bought some powder coated bullets from Missouri Bullet Company, which is an excellent place to do business by the way. Excellent. And uh, I really am impressed with them. They, they shoot clean. Um, they really are as good as plated bullets and while they may not be for high velocity as good as jacketed bullets um, not having lead in the bore when you're shooting nine millimeter is really nice uh, nine millimeter lead bullets can be problematic because even if you reduce the load to just enough so that it cycles the action um... you can get some lead in there and it is I had a uh, World War II era P38, and of course, you know those have some tool marks in the barrel—not not corrosion, not anything. It, the bore was looked like it was brand new, but it it's not as nicely finished as a commercial gun that you would find nowadays. And man, lead bullets would lead that thing, and it was it was the devil's own to get that out. So I've always been leery of lead bullets. Uh, it appears that powder coating solves that problem. So buying powder coated bullets is only slightly more expensive than uh, uncoated bullets. And I think it's worth it. I, I really think it's worth it. Um, it just seems to be. And, and guys have even taken these bullets and they kind of mush them with pliers and the coating doesn't break. It, it's ductile enough that it kind of keeps the shape with the bullet. Um, I'm actually very impressed with it. the nine millimeter ones I've shot have been very accurate and very very clean so I'm pretty happy with those so I thought I would try it myself and of course epic fail I went to Harbor Freight bought some powder coating paint you know the black paint and I had the little the little container and I tried to shake and bake them and it's just not working so in doing further research they said the, the Harbor Freight paint isn't very good, and it's notorious for this. So, I, I, you know, again, maybe next month I will attempt to buy some of the uh, better powder coating paint and um, give it another try and maybe up the game on my containers and, and a few things so I can, uh, I can see if I can get, you know, uh, some measure of success with that because I really like it, and frankly, it'll save time it'll save freaking time because like Lee bullets, you can basically use those out of the mold. You don't really don't, the, the reason to size them is to lube them. And you know, the old fashioned luber sizers, and I've got one, you know, where you put the bullet in, you munch it down, then you, you move this little ratchet thing to force the uh, um, the lube into the, into the grooves and bring it out. I mean, you do that a hundred times and that's, that's a lot of work. Trying to t- up trying to up the the um, volume a little bit, uh, powder coating is a lot easier. You can do bigger batches of bullets and it's a lot less time consuming per projectile. So um, I really think that's the way to go. So I'm going to give it a, another couple more tries, but it'll probably be another month or so before I'm, uh, I'm doing it. I think I'm going to try to get a better container and I'm going to try to get better paint and a few other things so I can i can do that uh, there's a company called eastwood and i think they produce actually the best the best paint and and you know there are youtube videos out there i would suggest if you make your own bullets you might want to look at those and see if it's for you but to me it's a way to get a higher performance bullet which i like and i'm perfectly satisfied with lead bullets for a lot of applications but i don't really want to get leading so and for some old soldiers like the 3040 40 Krag um, <clears throat> a few other ones it's a really good way a 30, 30 Winchester is another 32 Winchester special a lot of the older rifle cartridges um, and those are actually all rimmed but um, you know for some of those older rifle cartridges you can get some good low pressure loads and with a powder-coated cast bullet, that really doesn't give up too much to what their original loadings were. So, you know, that's another feature to consider also. So, that brings me to a sort of political story. Uh, You know, everybody's heard the Russian ammo ban. Uh, What does that really mean? And I've probably put out some misinformation on this also, unknowingly, really unwittingly, but you know, a lot of the what we consider to be Russian ammunition is made in places like Romania and and other other places. And Wolf Ammo, the big traditional Russian company, has been kind of. Um, I think they may have had enough fear and foresight to know that this might be coming, and they've been they've been decentralizing their production uh, into other countries. So, you know, well, it'll remain to be seen. I'm sure this is going to have an effect how big of an effect remains to be seen but it it will have some sort of effect because i don't think that u.s manufacturers have the stomach to want to produce the low cost practice loads that people want i mean hey, face it you know if you're in a if you're in a shooting competition putting holes in silhouettes or paper um, the stuff that's eight dollars a box retail is just as it's it's a lot but you can buy a lot more of that than you can the stuff that's fifteen dollars a box so and i don't think our manufacturers look at that market at all i think they just left that to the foreigners and um, like the ak market and like a lot of other things if we want these things we're going to have to make it here so that's great you know i'm not a big fan of putting my putting my future or my destiny in the hands of others so i kept thinking about well you know what can i do and and my deal is hey if i can powder coat if i can learn if i can crack the code on powder coating bullets i can make ammunition that is effectively like toll ammo you know the cheap cheap stuff that i was buying just for practice and actually it might be a little bit better in some ways because I'll be loading it in in once fired brass cases so because there is plenty of nine millimeter brass around the police going back to nine millimeter there's a there's a lot of it out there and once fired brass is not going to be hard to find so I could I can make something and, and face it toll ammo was designed it's not high-speed high-performance ammo it's basically with as little powder <laughs> as they can as they can put in there and still have it function reliably in most guns. And you can do the same thing with hand loads. Um, if you have two or three 9mm guns, um, you can kind of figure out where that minimum is that will work for one gun and then try it in another, see if it works, and then try it in the third gun. You might have to up it a few grains so that it works in all three or four guns, but You'll get there. You'll get there. You'll get that low power load that works in almost any gun. And so I I kept thinking, you know, what if I was unfortunate and did not have loading equipment and other things? What would I really do? And the answer is, I, I think that if you want to stick a finger in Biden's eye on the ammo ban, Um, You need to put together a group and you need to put together a small group of, say, four people and, you know, produce your own ammunition. And that can be done. That can be done. Uh, I was just going through some of the numbers and I figured it'd probably take a month of of working, you know, a couple hours every day, you know, after work and some time on the weekends. And it could be done. Uh, Let's say you have four people. Okay, one guy. His job is to procure and process brass, which is he would he would get it, he would clean it, and he would deprime it. You know, and the reason why that's important is you really don't want berdan primed ammunition, a case to get into your your lot, and there is still some of that out there, and you don't want steel cases and all that. So that that's a pretty big job right there. Then you look. <clears throat> what would the numbers actually look like? Cause the next guy is going to be a guy who can he cast and powder coat bullets. Can, can he do that? And you get somebody who's got that. He buys that equipment. So the first guy buys the cleaning kind of inspection equipment, couple of big tumblers and all the media and all that kind of nonsense that, that goes with all that. So you can, and, and packages and bags it. So what he produces is a, is a, deprimed, maybe even sized, but a deprimed clean nine millimeter hull that's been inspected so it's not cracked or anything. The next guy, and maybe you put two guys on this job, the next guy casts and powder coats bullets. That's what he does. He buys the gets the furnace, gets the molds, all that stuff, and they cast and powder coat bullets. The fourth guy because we would put two guys on that because that's it the fourth guy basically takes primes the case puts the charge in puts the bullet in and you know basically achieves and does the crimp and achieves all those things through a mechanical reloader you really have to look at a progressive reloader so if you know people who have some of this equipment you can all kind of put it together and and just running some quick numbers It'd probably cost you it would probably cost if you can get primers at 50 bucks a thousand and I think that's where the the price is gonna kind of go I know that there's some guys getting insane hundred bucks for a thousand primers but um, even if you do that it, it it changes the calculus a little bit but um, if you essentially can get primers get say get 14,000 primers okay at fifty bucks well that's seven hundred dollars okay if you can then get you the brass will probably you can scrounge it but you might have to buy tumbler media you might buy some brass but if you could get say nine or fourteen thousand cases and that's not that hard you think it's hard but it's not that hard I I see them laying all over the ground it's it's work and the key to all this is work but it can be done Uh, you do you get that and then casting that many bullets is going to be and powder coating them is going to be a challenge and then running them through the um, progressive machine is a challenge but for probably somewhere in the vicinity of twelve hundred to thirteen hundred dollars you're probably going to be able to produce like fourteen thousand rounds you get an eight pound keg of powder and there's seven thousand grains in a pound and you're using a four grain load you can do the mathematics but that basically means that eight pounds of powder will give you fourteen thousand rounds if you divide that up among four guys that's thirty five hundred rounds apiece and if you look at the straight cost you're probably looking at under ten certainly under ten cents around so you know it is doable it just requires work but if you want to stick a finger in biden's eye you basically do that and guess what you have your equivalent of tull ammo you have your equivalent of it and it's probably cost you about a month's work everybody has to work the the brass guy is the first guy who's got to start he and the bullet guy and uh they they build up about a week's worth of that stuff and then they can start shifting it to the um to the other to the other guy who's gonna put it through the press and they continue to work and literally within about a month depending on how much effort and work you're willing to put into it you know 3500 rounds will last you a long time um, you know it's it's entirely doable and it brings the thousand round cost down to about what about a hundred bucks hundred bucks, a thousand. That's not bad. That is not bad. So, you know, it it just requires work, but that's how we're going to have to work our way through the Biden capricious Biden bans, because while this stuff, while the steel case, nine millimeter might be available, I just don't think it's going to be available at the bargain basement prices. We were used to paying for it. That's just, that's just it. So I would, uh, if you, if you don't, and you don't want, if you don't want to invest in all of it, invest in just part of it. Then later you can grow it. If you're the guy with the progressive press, um, you can buy the other stuff and then all of a sudden you can do this all on your own. If you want, if you're the guy who's got the tumbler as well, then you know what other pieces you have to buy. If you're the guy who's casting and and powder coating, you're going to know what you have to buy. And, uh, you know, it's it's you can it's you can use it as a way to grow into the hobby without a huge cash outlay. It'll cost you something, but without a huge cash outlay. So there you go. Um, I would put together ammo groups, produce ammo. Uh, I think that could work out. And and again, what a stick in the eye to bite me, <laughs> old Joe bite me. Okay, well that takes us. Through the projects and through uh, through something that can be done to uh, get ammo into people's pockets. Um, now we will go to my favorite part of the podcast. As I look over my notes, it is the questions and answers. And uh, got a few of these things that always kind of roll in. So let's let's just start rolling up the sleeves and get after them. First question: What is the most underrated? PCC, and that's Pistol Caliber cartri- Carbine Not Cartrine, Carbine Cartridge And uh, that's an interesting That's very interesting um, I tend to think That the best PCC cartridges Are the ones that were Actually started as Dual purpose or Even rifle cartridges And so that would lead me to believe That um you know 4440 3840 those are great cartridges for a PCC now I'm not talking semi-automatic that's that has a whole nother another deal but I think and I'm not a big 4440 fan I do like the 3840 Uh, it's a little more bottlenecked it feeds really well and at least in the Marlin gun I have that's a 3840 um, I'm able to use 10 millimeter bullets And even the flat nose on those feed feed very well so i like 3840 it's a good cartridge out of a rifle again and when i look at a pcc i'm not looking at range i'm really looking at you know effectiveness out to 50 maybe 100 yards maybe but you know really looking around that 50 maybe 75 or in an extreme case 100 yards um, I've used nine millimeter and forty five and unless the gun just requires that because it's like a Thompson you know or you know a Ruger um, pc nine, unless it's that, um, i prefer I prefer the older the old west cartridges, and I think that the most underrated one, but an excellent one is thirty eight forty. so there you go. Oh, this is an easy one. We've even talked about this before. Why isn't the 44 Special more popular? It's powerful, accurate, and traditional. And why aren't more guns made for it? Well, the biggest problem with the 44 Special is it's not a 44 Magnum. Um, I have an old 629, no, 629, 624, 624 that I bought. Um, Years ago, and my biggest fear with that gun is that hey, I will need ammunition. I'll go into a Cabela's or some other place, and I will only find 44 Magnum, and not 44 Special, because there's so few guns made in it. Um, it's an excellent cartridge. It's what I like about the 44 Special is it's got mild recoil, very very good accuracy, and it's got good power. I mean, it's it's one of those ones that it gives you nice you know you're shooting a 240 grain bullet um, a little bit faster than a 45 auto and you're shooting it a lot of times in a very good revolver a lot of good revolvers were made in 44 special so you can get great accuracy out of it They also there you know there was really some nice um, concealable guns made for that you know so it's a very very good cartridge but it will never be more popular because it's not a Magnum and you can shoot 44 specials in a 44 magnum but not vice versa so I would um, I would say that the 44 special will be around but it will never be popular and I would say that you know ammo availability is always going to be hit or miss with it so that's that is the story on it the the actual direct answer to the question is why is it more popular? Because it's not a 44 Magnum. That's the that's the real answer. But it really is an excellent cartridge. Really like it. Really do. Okay. This one is kind of related. Do new pistol cartridges have a chance for survival slash popularity, or are there too many old favorites? Okay. Um. I I don't see that many new cartridges coming out unless they offer something very unique and you see the ones that have failed don't offer anything that unique the 45 gap okay Glock didn't really want to make a lot of bigger guns so they made a smaller 45 cartridge to fit their smaller guns Um, it's worse than the case with the 44 special because you could you i rarely see 45 gap ammunition anywhere. And I'm, I'm willing to hazard that right now, um, you couldn't find it any place. And it's not going to be easy. To, it's a proprietary cartridge. It's, you know, it is a problem. Any gun in that cartridge, stock up and learn, learn how to handload because that's the only way you're going to keep it fed. Whether you like it or think it's better than a 45 ACP doesn't really matter. It's, it's not any good because it's not prolific enough. So, and that's that's one of the cases of new cartridge not unique enough to capture the market. Uh, let's see a couple other ones. Let's think about uh, a few other ones. You know, are the, where the another case in point, and this is going back in history, but even applies now. The auto mag cartridges just didn't catch on because face it a 44 auto mag was the ballistic equivalent of a 44 magnum so why you can get 44 magnum anywhere any place that sells ammunition we usually have 44 magnum no, almost no place ever had 44 auto mag so while you might like the auto mag gun um, the ammunition for it was proprietary and it did not offer a performance advantage over 44 magnum so no one was going to chamber anything else in it and in fact you know the only chance it could have had was if the desert eagle had been brought out in 44 auto mag um, you know it would have it would have breath breathed some life into that cartridge but they didn't they came out with 44 magnum because you can buy 44 magnum anywhere. so um, new ones have a real problem um the only uh, and you look at the 32 h&r magnum and the 327 federal they offered well they, they would claim that they could rival the 357 which was not true but they offered 38 special performance in a gun that was about the same size as comparative 38 specials and again where do you find this stuff where do you find it and the answer is no so um While it may be very, very good, and a lot of people may like it very much, it's just not prolific enough to be popular or ensure its own survival. Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, um, I for one thing believe we actually have too many cartridges now. I know that's a weird thing to say, and people say, oh, that's, that's a boomer thing or something like that. But... No, my viewpoint is that part of the reason we have an ammo shortage is because we have so many different cartridges that, you know, it's hard to keep the panic buying for all of them <laughs> well stocked. So if we had about a third less, yeah, I think it would be very helpful. But they're way, and there are a lot that duplicate each other and near duplicates of each other. So. I'll leave it to you which ones you think are great, which ones you do not think are great. That's, that's up to you. Okay, the next question. Have you ever used exploding targets? I have to say I have not, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to the idea. I don't think, though. Obviously, using them on a public range is highly problematic and probably never going to really happen. So I don't believe that they're uh, going to be widely popular. Now, people on their own land um, or places where they can shoot kind of unrestricted uh, can use those. You know, frankly, I saw enough of that stuff when I was in the military. I saw enough things explode. I'm not opposed to it. I might try one out sometime. But to me, it does not have the allure it does to some other people. Plus, a lot of it reeks of... Remember about you know, eight, ten years ago, those goofy shooting shows that were on. They had the guy in Colorado, the guy, the guy who was the child molester in Louisiana. <laughs> then they had a few other these other things. Um, these guys, you know, they were always demonstrating a gun, and they, you know, somebody'd fire into a a barrel, and the whole thing would explode. You know, kind of almost movie special effects kind of um, ridiculousness. And you know, I just sit there and go, you know, that's not what a bullet really does. A bullet doesn't explode things. Um, these things were all rigged, so if they hit a certain spot, it would it would trigger a charge. I don't really get that, but you know, people did and watched those things. Fortunately, I think those are all those are all gone now. Guy in Louisiana, I think he's doing life. So uh, there you are on that. Okay, here's our next question this is kind of a this is a little little uh, different one and its I've noticed models meaning female models girls like in you know bathing suit type stuff uh, being used in advertising gun products not really by the major gun companies but by companies that make accessories and and other things do you think this is a wise practice Okay, the I think it's from a business standpoint I don't know because I don't I don't know what attracts attention and what kind of imagery they want to use. I can tell you I take a very dim view of that simply because shooting and firearms, target shooting, hunting and all that should be looked upon as a wholesome activity and I realize that these pictures are not pornography and it's its models and they get paid and that's that's what they do. You know, they stand next to they could be standing holding a a shotgun in one segment and they could literally in the afternoon be standing next to a Ferrari or something so um I don't have a problem with them making a living or or doing that I, I personally don't like that kind of advertising and I've seen it um I never liked the the blue press the the Dylan catalog that always had some some girly stuff in it um I don't. don't, And again, it's not dirty, but it just seems to be. There's just a tinge of unwholesomeness there that I just don't like. And and also, you have to look. I guess these guys and a lot of the some of the companies that I've seen that do this are, you know, tactical. You know, so they know there's not going to be a lot of females buying that kind of stuff. But if you're if you're in trying to enlarge your female market, I don't think that is the way to go. So anyway, no, I think that's actually very stupid. I'd like to see less of it. Um, it, You know, all I find, the minute I see that, and even with the Dylan stuff, which I know is very high quality, I own Dylan stuff, so I know it's how good it is. But whenever I see that, I think, okay, they're obviously advertising a cheap product and they are trying to distract me from seeing the details of, of that this the weaknesses of the product that they're trying to sell. They're trying to distract me a little bit. And I always naturally uh, um, feel that they're trying to conceal something or or uh, keep me from finding something out that I would need to know that, that might affect my purchase decision. So no, I don't like it at all. I don't think it's smart. On any level to to do that, and you know, I, I just hope it goes away. I don't see too much of it anymore, so I, I'm hoping that that's going away. Uh, it's, it's really foolishness, it really is. Okay, another one. Ah, uh, I'm planning on purchasing a handgun for recreation and possible defense. What kind of sights should I get on it? fix sights. Should I get the combat style sights or should I get adjustable sights? There's not really any guide to tell me which would be the best for my uses. Okay, I break with most tradition on this and I will tell you that uh, for a first hand gun, and I, I'm assuming that the person knows how to shoot a little bit um, you should always get adjustable sights even if you don't adjust them very much. Here's, here's what I will tell you is that an adjustable sight handgun the way handguns and sights are made now they're, they're very durable and very good. The, the police might not use them because of the you know, getting knocked about every day or or the heavy use but for civilians uh, good sights, easy to see sights are a, a really good deal and unless it's a CCW handgun that's going to go in and out of a holster all the time chances are your gun won't see that much holster time so uh, good sights are not a problem and I prefer what's known as a patridge style front sight which has a kind of as you're looking at it if you look at it sideways it's like at a ninety-degree angle to the slide I don't really care for ramp sights very much they were, de- they were designed to, to get out of holsters but I like the Patridge style sight although I've used all kinds of sights so it's, it's the nice part about the Patridge sight is and it's P-A-T-R-I-D-G-E some people call it a Partridge but they put an R in there it's actually Patridge um, the nice part about it is since it's perpendicular to the slide um, the sun affects it a little bit less and it's usually a very sharp post uh, when you see it and the rear sight that they usually mate with those it usually has a very distinct cutout and again the rear of that sight is perpendicular to the slide so you don't get a lot of um, interference of the sun you know light reflecting off it it's, it's kind of straight up and down so it's a a very it provides a very good sight picture a very traditional iron sight picture Um, on this question I'm I'm kinda ignoring saying well you know there's always the other option which is a red dot sight which for beginners I don't think that is after you've been shooting a while if you decide you want that that's fine but a beginner should probably not deal with that Um, good durable adjustable sights are good and those come pretty standard on almost any Smith and Wesson revolver you buy is going to have a good set of adjustable sights. Um, auto pistols are a little bit tougher a lot of times they don't wanna put adjustable sights on there but the ones they have on now are very very durable and, and will, will do you very very well so that's what I would go with and in shooting those in shooting those what I think the best technique is is don't adjust them just take it out of the box put it out at five yards and slow fire and see where the impact is and you're probably going to be pretty straight on pretty pretty good as you move back you might find that it's shooting to one side or the other or a little higher a little low and when you get comfortable that you've really got the feel of the gun and you can fire it from a rest at the distance that you really want to precisely hit a target at. Then you can adjust the sight. I've seen too many guys, but you really have to practice with it. I've seen way too many people with all kinds of sights, but it's pistol sights are particularly bad. Uh, they're chasing a zero all day long because they fire it. They start to get a little bit tired. They adjust the sights, they get a little bit tired, and they've kind of changed their technique. And so the the gun is never really hitting where they're adjusting the sight to, because their technique is changing, and usually it's getting getting a little worse, and they're they're chasing the the zero around, and it's just it's it can be very very frustrating for someone, especially if they've just spent a thousand dollars on a gun and they can't seem to get it sighted in at fifteen yards. So I I believe in taking it slow because first the first. Uh, and, and there's always a different thing on this but the first hundred rounds anyway that you fire through it you're, you're really doing that just to get the feel of the gun and quote break the gun in quote unquote so you know y- you can you can afford to say I'm gonna take it as it is I'm gonna fire it I'm gonna work on my technique and then after a while when you get really comfortable with it after you've practiced and it may be a different a totally different range session there's no time limit on this and after you've been practicing dry firing or or using some other method to tighten up your marksmanship then you can sit there and go well I think we pretty much have it you know and I can move it it is shooting three inches to the right at 25 yards so I'm going to move the uh, um, move the sight and make sure that you consult the manual or at least Google it to see which way to turn the screws because that's the other bugaboo some sites aren't marked so people will it's shooting to the right and they actually move the site so it shoots more to the right and then they try to shift it back left and you know it's it's a lot easier whenever you're taking an adjustable site whether it's a rifle or pistol out on the range it pays to do some homework so that you know where the adjustments will take you because sometimes they're not marked and if they're not marked you're in a world of hurt, or <laughs> with some of the Warsaw Pact stuff. Some of the stuff out of your Euro- Eastern European, it may be marked in Cyrillic, which you might have to look that up before, <laughs> unless you intuitively know it. Um, and and you know the the funny part is it's there's there's different languages. It could be in Polish. It could be in Russian. It could be in you know, some other language that's that's there. Could be in Romanian if it's if it's one that came from Romania or Hungarian in, in Hungary. So you have to you have to be careful with some of that foreign made optics. Um they, <laughs> they can be they can present a challenge. Last thing you want to be is out on the range going hey i wonder which way i need to turn this <laughs> you know because there are two words there i don't recognize i don't recognize which one is left and which one's right that's that's one of the other reasons to take your uh, and i have to admit this this happened to me i had a i had a scope out there and i had no idea when will levo leva it was leva and Suprava or something on the, on this deal. Like, I don't know which one's left and right. So I, I basically, I had enough cell phone coverage. I was able to get on the internet and Google it and go, Oh, okay. Now I know which is which. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that because you might be in a range where you don't have that connectivity. So anyway, um, yeah, look that stuff up ahead of time because sometimes you never know. Sometimes you never know. And, uh, you know, that brings me to the, uh, this is, veering away from the question but you know one of my favorite things are warsaw packed scopes i don't know why i like them but i just do i've got a couple of them and uh you know i have found i've got what one two three i think i'm three of them well four if i count my moisen sniper i find that they are just functional they're not fancy and there's nothing, you know, they're not going to win the, uh, there's not, that's not the kind of glass you'd put on the Hubble telescope or anything, but you know what? They work exceptionally well for what they are. Um, a good durable combat scope, they they work exceptionally well, and so I, I actually like them, and I'm actually lamenting the days. It used to be days 20 years ago and so, such. You could pick those up for nothing. I mean, you could pick, you could pick up a beautiful scope for 150 bucks and or even less now there are a lot of knockoffs on the market so you got to be careful Uh, but there's still a few places that sell them but the prices have gone have gone up but they are still very cool scopes uh rifle scopes and uh you know at one time they made uh they made some handgun stuff but i think pretty much all that is that is um kind of passe now i don't know how much i don't know how much uh good optics technology for handguns especially is coming out of the uh former soviet union or eastern europe i I think they've always kind of lagged behind i know that they were there was a competitor to the eotech it was more expensive and i believe that the uh I believe it had kind of a blue tinge to it so when you're trying to see a steel target you can't you know it's it's a lot harder to see gray on in this the gray of the steel in um, in this kind of bluish background you know it would kind of kind of conceal that so I don't know if they've if they've overcome that challenge or or whatever but it sure would be nice to see some some of that stuff come in I if I do have some scopes that are made in China. I mean, I think Athlon stuff for the most part is made in China, and I've got a couple other things that were made there. They're not bad. They're nice scopes. Very nice, but I kind of prefer the Eastern European stuff. Um, just do. But anyway, that's uh, that's a digression. Uh, I would get very good, very good adjustable sights, and you know, if you're really going to get a first gun a 22 a first hand gun. A 22 is a really good choice. Ruger 22 with good sights is a a really wonderful investment in your shooting. So anyway, that's it for this edition, the 112th episode of Old School Guns. And again, if you have any questions or comments. You can leave them on the comments section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.